Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the political party. May the 6th is getting closer by the second polling day up and down the UK for a number of different officers. And today we talk to an elected mayor, Marvin Rees, the Labour elected mayor of Bristol, standing for re-election on the 6th of May. This is a jewel of a conversation. A, a duel, as in like a shiny. I just realised I made it sound like a duel, like it was a fight. What I mean more is that it is a diamond of a conversation, a rare treat, a gem, which I hope you'll enjoy. Before I come on to what Marvin and I discuss, just in case you're not aware now, I'm saying this at the start of every podcast and all over social media, but live shows are returning and I'm delighted that I'm doing three nights at the beautiful Garrick Theatre in London's West End with some amazing lineups. So these are happening live with an audience. You can get tickets now, but the tickets are going fast. So here are the lineups. The 24th of May, Monday, the 24th of May is Peter Mandelson and Saeed Avasi. On Tuesday, the 25th of May, it's Keir Starmer and Andrea Ledson. And on Wednesday, the 2nd of June, it's Esther McVeigh and Jess Phillips. Three phenomenal lineups at a beautiful venue. I went to see this house there, the brilliant James Graham play. So to be able to take some political entertainment there myself is, is a real honour. And... This Thursday, the 22nd of April, the first ever political party streaming event where my guest will be Tony Blair. Tickets are just a tenner. You can get them now by clicking on the link. I've never done a streaming event before. I cannot wait for that. I'm so delighted to be doing a political party stream and to have Tony Blair as a guest, as the guest, is a real, real treat. So you can get those tickets now for all those wonderful events. And, uh, well, hopefully I'll see you Thursday night at 8 o'clock with Tony Blair. For now, of course, I'm joined by Marvin Rees. Now, Marvin has been getting more national attention in the last couple of years uh, than perhaps he might have bargained for, for obvious reasons that we talk about, about the events that have been going on in Bristol. This is a brilliant conversation about what brought him to politics, about the values that guide him, about defending politics as a pursuit, as an industry, about the danger of not doing that. There are so and his reaction to those major news flashpoints that have happened in Bristol, to the to the protest at the Colston statue and the pulling down of that and the kill the bill protests and the way that he's handled the delicate politics around those things. Uh, this is just a fantastic conversation about what politics really is and about what being an individual in politics is and about what power really means. I began by asking Marvin, just because quite as you may think this is quite a mundane start to the conversation, but given that I'd had Andy Street on a few weeks ago, the Metro Mayor for the West Midlands, I think it is quite handy. I know a lot of people listen to this show who don't necessarily work in politics or know what different types of officers are. So I began by asking Marvin specifically about what roles, about what powers his role as elected mayor of Bristol has.
Well, I have the executive power within the local authority, and that covers the traditional functions of a local authority, all the services we run. Many of those services are not in the Metro Mayor role. So adult social care, for example, or children's that services. So our Metro Mayor is, the model is basically around um, education and skills, transport and homes. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the remit. But clearly there's an overlap because we're the planning authority, so homes don't happen without us um, anyway. So in, in short, I mean, we've got a billion pound budget a year. Our Metro Mayor has a billion pound budget over 30 years. Uh, and has to work with us. So there's a lot of overlap, but there's a, there's a distinction. So we're much more in the nuts and bolts of everyday lives of people. Uh, and and um, yeah, so that, that's amongst the, the kind of the key differences. Really. And the political side of it, you're the elected mayor of the city. You're also leader of the Labour group and you have to pick a cabinet from the council chamber. But in Bristol at the moment, Labour have 33 seats and the opposition combined has 34. So how do you... Even though you're the elected mayor of the city, how do you then preside over a chamber? It's basically like a president when you're presiding over a Senate that you don't control. Or you want to be careful with that language. (laughs) (laughs) The the effort. Which bit? In my my five years, the efforts that I've been branded by one of the opposition parties, they've gone through Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, uh, King John Un. And I will actually say, it was a couple of meetings ago, they talked about my cabinet merely following orders. Um, so they've gone for the full house on uh, my dictatorial tendencies and authority. You know what, under, under the previous Labour leadership, uh, other Labour candidates might have taken some of those names as a compliment. Oh, <laughs> it, was, it was nonsense. I mean, as long as we, uh, it, you know, on a day-to-day, because it's a cabinet model, the executive power is in, in the mayoral office. So that's, that's the legislation. So, you know, we make the decision. So I delegate authority to my cabinet to make decisions, uh, you know, when we go over... Um, five hundred thousand pounds, but then the the the, cap, the the chamber really comes into play at the annual budget, where the councillors have an opportunity to amend, oppose, um, uh, you know, or support our, our budget each year. And do you find that the system works? I mean, it must be difficult if you don't have a majority on the floor of the council, where you may be returned in a couple of weeks' time as the elected mayor. But if the voters of Bristol say, "Well, we want Marvin to continue as mayor, but we're going to deliver a different for whatever reason." Um, constitution beneath you. How do you then? How do you then get stuff through? Because not every decision we make has to go to full council for the support of all the councillors. It's a, it's an, you know, I'm an executive mayor, and I have so the power resides uh, in me, and then I can delegate authority to my cabinet, and then they can make uh, decisions. There are lots of checks and balances on local government anyway. When people talk about the mayors having too much power, whether it be Ofsted, MHCLG, the Treasury. You know, LGA peer challenges and reviews. We open ourselves up to accountability all the time. So there's lots of checks and balances on the government, but we have that executive uh, power, and it's important, actually. I'd say that you know, um, you know, there is a debate around it, you know, whether a mayor is undemocratic because because it does bring that power. But to be perfectly frank, the city outgrew the old model of political leadership. You know, groups of and dare I say, groups of old men sitting around uh, committee rooms with cups of tea and cake. Um, you know wrangling over details in officers' papers, um, but not actually getting thing, anything done. And then the invisibility of that inability to make decisions have not, has not served the city, not only in its ambition, but in the need to tackle inequality and inclusion. Um, so the visibility of me as a decision maker actually supports democracy because ultimately I'm accountable. And I tend to be held accountable for everything. 
uh, shoelaces being untied to uh, housing numbers. <laughs> well, I was going to talk to you about the great shoelace scandal of 2020, but maybe we'll, oh. <laughs> maybe we'll come on to that later. But there's no doubt in areas where you have elected mayors, the accountability is, is, is far greater. People know who the leader of their area is in a way that when you get that old elected leader model, the old council leader model, people just don't seem to engage in the same way. And what's crucial is your name is on every ballot paper across the city. And that that drives a level of engagement. Yeah, so the, yeah, I think the visibility of decision-making is hugely significant. There's that quote, I think, was it C.S. Lewis said? The greatest, weapon, the greatest weapon the devil ever had was to convince people he never existed. You know, the invisibility of decision-making. I, I would only know world. that from the usual suspects. I can't claim to have known <laughs> that from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's yes, Lewis. Anyway, I might have it, but you know, it, it's it's. I grew up in the city. This is the city. I couldn't tell you who was responsible for historical failures to deliver, and not just the things you can see, but the fact that we ended up, according to Running Me, the seventh worst city in you know in the UK for black people. Where do we go uh, for that? But actually, bringing decision makers into the public, making sure people can look them in the eye, uh, know who they are, know their phone number, know their email, and how to get them, is hugely important. And there's a debate in the city now. I mean, one of the one of the well, two of the parties actually want to scrap the mayor. They're running on a back me to sack me uh, campaign, which is almost like a Brexit campaign, really. Let's you know, let's let's sack a politician, irrespective of the issues. Let's just get rid of someone. Um, but you know, m- my point is that it, 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 you're saying it's democratic, but what you'll do is that. So, who chooses a political leader if it's not the directly elected mayor? Well, the councillors do. All right, so we've got seventy councillors. So 70 councillors are going to go into a room, whatever machinations go on inside City Hall, and choose a political leader. So next question is, so how long is that political leader going to be in power? Four years? Well, so between 70 people, they choose a political leader of a city for four years? Or is it one year? Well, then we end up with the ongoing churn and instability that Bristol suffered from for decades, which means that actually what ends up happening is the city is run by the council officers because they never know who's going to be in charge next year. So they never commit to any uh, projects. So, you know, there's a lot of layers to it that, that are not necessarily be important to the public domain, but that's the nature of poor quality political discourse, I guess. Yes, I've always been. I worked for an elected mayor. In fact, I worked for an elected mayor who was removed by referendum in Stoke-on-Trent, which was uh, oh. a, a terrible experience because I was a, and to remain an advocate of the elected mayoral model like, yeah. for all the reasons that you've outlined. And because... On top of the point that you make about it being chosen by councillors in, in City Hall or wherever, councillors often elected on very, very low turnouts. You yeah, could end up it. running a city in a multi-million pound budget on 200 votes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this would be it. So, you know, the, the majority, the group, the, the largest group would go into a room between them, maybe, I don't know, 17 people, maybe there's 35 people in the room between them, they choose who they want to be the leader, um, then they take it to full council, get it voted, and, you know, say there are two people not there, 68 councillors are present, as long as you get 35, you've got, you got your political leader. <laughs> Where is the democracy in that? Where is the accountability? Who would know? Who, who knew before? Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a good model. It's a good model for the city. I also think it's a good model for, uh, for visibility. It's a good model for delivery, again, because... Uh, you know, the, the, the political leadership isn't churning over every year. And one of the first things that we had to do when we come in was connect political leadership, vision, aspiration and values with the machinery of local government because it wasn't connected before. Right? The officers did what they did and the politicians did a dance on the side in, in the headlines of the local rag. You know, it was, there was no join up. And, and so we made that connection. But we've also used the role, dare I say, Matt, to 
to convene the city. So our, my model, of, my understanding of mayor was that no single organization in Bristol shapes life, for, you know, shapes the city. People's, people's experiences of Bristol was the result of the, the interaction of decisions made by a whole range of organizations, many of which I do not control. Universities are small towns in Bristol. The health service is accountable to London, not to me. All right, the clinical commissioning group. The police service has its own police crime commissioner. We've got major employers in the city that shape the lives of you know, tens of thousands of people. You know? So, and, and our, our huge voluntary sector. So I've used my role to convene all those organizations and say, can, rather than us plowing, you know, 125 different fields, can we all focus on a smaller number of shared priorities at any one point in time? And we've done that to real good effect on homelessness, period poverty, work experience, kids in the care system. You know, we've had some really good kind of collective outcomes. This is the third time you stood for this office. You, you won last time, you're standing for re-election. You stood in 2012 and lost uh, to an independent. A lot of people who would have lost having not held the office would have just gone, I'm not bothering with that again. It must have taken huge strength of character to go again in 2016. What, what did you learn from that defeat in 2012? And what did you do in those intervening four years to make sure you won? Well, I, I did learn something about myself, actually, which is when you talk about uh, resilience. Um, I did, because it was low. It was a very low time. And I'll, and I'll show you, I'll, I'll come back to a couple of those the themes. And I think, you, you know, I, there's a proverb I use a lot in the city. And it says, we don't despise our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character hope. To be honest, that's been a bit of a theme for my life. You know, I've come from a what some people might see quite as a challenging background. Um, and no one likes suffering and trials at the time. But if you can come through them, they become the sort you know, become evidence of your ability to persevere. You begin to flex that perseverance muscle. That becomes your character. So now, you know, there was a time when I would have felt kind of overwhelmed by some of the people I meet. But actually, I think, well, you didn't live in a refuge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. I did. You know. And I'm sitting at the same table as you. So pound for pound, skill for skill, right? Interesting. I lo I love the opening, the beginning of Goodwill Hunting when they're in a Harvard bar and he says your parents dropped whatever it is, 150 grand for an education you got for a buck in late charge at a public library. You know, I'm as intelligent as you, and you know. So I, I love. I think you're probably more intelligent than me. <laughs> I think most of our well, guests no, no, are more no. intelligent that than was, me. That's a generic you. That's a generic. <laughs> you. There's, there's something you said though, Matt, that that kind of hurt me at the time, and and. And, and that is the, the, this, this kind of narrative around independent. So we are, I, what I found interesting was coming from my background, you know, mixed race kid, white woman, brown, 1970s, brown baby and all the rest, Heisen State and the rest. I was up against a probably educated, yeah, millionaire architect, man about town for Bristol. And people still played the, well, Marvin, because you've got a political party, um, you represent the establishment now. Uh, I found that very hard. It's like mugging me of all the stuff I've been through, right? And and actually, it was flat out light. And for for you know, it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? We all talk about race and class, but no one knows how to talk about race and class. And that was on the table, right? And how they flipped that script, and they did it quite well. Look at me, I'm an independent. I've you know, I'm a Johnny Go. I have a light character. I've got no worries. Yeah, because you got a ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> you know we're about paying your bills so of course you're light and you of course you're fluffy and you know um so so that that was quite a hard bit and, and when I lost that election I, I, what went through my mind was oh they've won again right all those people who were born on that conveyor belt to success and power they got it again how did that happen and I felt that was a deep pain um inside me so um 
and by the way, I just want to be clear, that does not mean I walk around with a chip on my shoulder. One, one, of, the, one, of, the, one of the joys of being a member of the establishment is that you can slag the establishment off all you want and no one ever accuses you of having a chip on your shoulder. The moment someone like me does it, I'm an angry working class warrior, black man, you know what I mean, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's without doubt that I have a, you know, I do want to turn over the backgrounds of people who take up positions of power. And I got I guess, to do that in 2016. I guess what I meant with the independent thing was not that the guy who beat you wasn't privileged or wasn't rich, but he didn't have an established political operation. Whatever people think of the Labour Party, it has branches, it has data, it has people that can phone canvas and things like that. And whenever a major political party is beaten by something that wasn't an existing brand. Obviously, there are political lessons to be learned. So he'd... I mean, it's for him, it's still a, it, it was an interesting result in 2012. For anyone who's not a Labour, Tory, Lib Dem, or Green, perhaps, in parts of, parts of the world, and obviously SNP in Scotland, I mean, it must have been... I, I take the point that he's privileged and that he's well-off and that that gives him certain benefits. But in terms of being able to launch a ground operation... Was he able to compete with Labour? Did he have the sort of activists that you had? Well, again, you've got to peel the onions off this thing, right? So that would be the easiest. So, but he actually was a Lib Dem for 30 odd years, ran against William Wolderame, I think, in the 80s for, for Bristol West. So there was a long party membership there. And again, when you've got resource, you've got people with, you know, you, I call your friend up, I need a fantastic website. You know, I need this leaflet design. You've got those people at your uh, behest and the Labour does have a machine, but that, listen, I mean, I've been in campaign, the Labour, the machine doesn't always run in the way you'd like it to run. It's not always as smooth as, you know, as all that and the money, we're not awash with money. But I said, you know, that, you know, in the, being able to run as an independent is a sign of independent wealth in many ways. You know, to run a successful campaign as an independent is a sign of independent wealth, right? People like me would not get elected without Labour Party and the unions, right? I must say CWU, bang, you know, straight out of the blocks, supporting me office space campaign you know i had nothing you know cw come th come through you know unite uh, gmb uh, you, um i've got to go for more us door without the support of the unions and labor party candidates like me wouldn't exist campaign across bristol costs about seventy thousand pounds 60 70 pounds i don't have that and i don't have a network of friends who have that money producing the leaflets doing the direct mails and and all the right getting the website together so, then, so, so, yes, you can see, you know, I think they try to portray it as a David and Goliath, little old me against a big political party. But again, let's put race and class on that and look at the tilt in our world. You know, was I, was I really a Goliath in that, in that you know? So I, I just think it needs a bit of peeling back, you know? Well, that's what I wondered about 2012 was, were there political, were there other political undercurrents that those of us not in Bristol might not have picked up on? Was there something else going on there? Was that an early warning about things like Brexit, about a, a, an anti-establishment vote expressing itself, um, <laughs> perhaps voting for establishment figures, but nevertheless, uh, an well, anti-establishment vote was, wasn't it? <laughs> that might regard <laughs> itself as an anti-establishment. And, uh, you know, we can, yeah. can also talk about what people perceive the establishment to be. And that's another issue that certainly Farage has been very good at but but I guess what I was trying to inch towards with 2012 was were there other things going on in that election other than just simply the popularity of you or the Labour Party? Oh I certainly think that the, the appetite for non-party politicians people who were seen as free so the language was no one in London's going to tell me what to do 
you know, I'm here just to serve you, not the party machine. I've got no bosses and, and all that. That was that was the language. And and that, you know, and that was was incredibly attractive. I suppose the irony is, you know, that um, I'm not a party machine either. You know, I joined the party quite late for Operation Blackbird. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I came in, I was, you know, people started to ask me which, which faction of the party are you in. So I had to deal with that. I didn't join. I didn't join this party to join your faction. I joined a party to get together a group of people who want to get good stuff done, make the world fairer, more sustainable. That's what that's what I'm here for, you know. And if you're that person, great, let's work together. But don't ask me to, you know, in you know suddenly indulge your theology and become a likeness of you. Um, so, no, that that yeah, it was it was a, a warning sign, I think. And and dare I say, I think our campaign did quite well because we actually held up a party vote in the face of that. Um, and remember, Bristol's is, you know, Bristol has a tradition of being a rebellious city as well. And it, it prides itself in that. It does go again, you know. So, again, I think that was part of the mix. But there are loads of undercurrents all the time in, in any election, aren't there? Some, some it's helpful to talk about, and some it's less helpful to talk about. I'll and, talk about the less helpful ones. Race and class is an undercurrent all the time. Who looks and, like the man? And what's <laughs> happened a lot? in particularly elected mayoral places is they're initially won by independents. Happened in Stoke, happened in Hartlepool, where the guy was the mascot of the football club. I think he won three terms, Stuart Drummond, to be fair to him. And then they come Labour or they go somewhere else. And that happened in Stoke and that happened in Bristol. Is People initially elect a so-called independent or a non-established party candidate, and then it, and then it comes to Labour. So people kind of scratch that itch early. There's that anti-politician thing. And I, I want to pick your brains on that because one thing that annoys me sometimes is politicians play into the anti-politician rhetoric. And oh. you think, if we all say, oh, it's London's fault or Europe's fault or Hollywood's fault or whatever, everyone then is just doing down the industry of politics and you make these renegades more likely. Yeah, that's one of my one of my favourite topics you just raised on there. <laughs> you know, I... So first off, I said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna abandon the name politician, right? Why should I? First of all, you know what you saying? I'm the same as like that conveyor belt, that Eaton conveyor belt. That you know, of course I'm not, right? So I want I think politician is a good profession. It's a good career if you can. No, good career. You know what I mean? It's a good thing to do, right? Because if you're trying to go in there to try and do good things, so why start? I'm not a politician. I am a politician, right? If you want to attach loads of uh, you know, negatives to that, then that's your business. But at least let's have a talk about why you're doing that and find out if it's an accurate thing to do. It's just too easy. Journalists do it. You know, I, when I look at some of the journalists on, you know, they, they went to the private school, they went to Oxbridge, and then they're talking about me like I'm a member of the, the political class. Wait there. <laughs> let's look at our backgrounds, my friend. You know what I mean? It's, are you kind of accusing me of being a member of the elite? If, if the difference between being a member of the elite is simply getting elected or money, you are in a very privileged position because it takes more than getting elected to be a member of the British elite, right? Unless you're already in it, <laughs> right? So that lack of understanding. And, and I tell you what, I, I, my little charge is that, that that casual dismissal undermining of the legitimacy of a life in politics, dare I say, and this is a bit dangerous for me, is a little bit of a middle-class indulgence, right? It, because if because people like people from backgrounds like mine, we need politics to work for us, right? We can't give it up to everyone else. We we need it to work for us. If the whole political economic machinery works for you, whether you vote or not, whether you participate or not, it doesn't really matter who's in charge, because you're fine. You got loads of you got loads of assets, right? And your assets will take care of you. 
you own a number of homes, you got a, you know, you got your degree, you got your, your master's, your PhD, your family have high net worth amongst themselves, so they can support you. But people who don't have that need politics to work. So when you do it down, and, and you did, you know, it's a, it's a problem for me. And I will share, there was one politician, I won't, remember his, won't mention his name, but I remember the phrase, and I reflect on this a lot. He said, I left politics to get involved in real politics. And I listened to that as a 20 year old and I swore off getting involved in politics. That's only mixed Ben. Race, mixed race guy, right? right. Single mum, lived in a refuge, lived in an estate. And I listened to that and said, I'll never get involved in electoral politics, right? So how many other people from backgrounds like mine listen to that? And it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice tune, right? It's rebellious, but we end, up, we end up abandoning the electoral process. We need to work for us. So I think there are many, many nice things that have been said alongside that. But to me, that probably, that probably kept me out of electoral politics for, for, for 10, 15 years longer um, than, than I would have ordinarily decided to have gone into it. That's incredible, the impact that phrase had on you. I remember Tony Benn saying it when he stood down, he was leaving Westminster to go into politics. It sounds great, but the, yeah. but the consequences for someone like me just fed into my cynicism. You know, I was quite cynical, like most teenagers, you know, reading... But it fed that and it legitimized that and it didn't challenge that. So the, the person who challenged me on it was Simon Woolley from Operation Blackbird. And he said, Marvin, you've got a great analysis on why the world is rubbish, but what are you actually going to do about it? You're going to join a party? You're going to take a risk that you'll fail, right? And then I decided to risk. I decided to join a party. I'm, I'm, with my, I'm a fallen human being with an imperfect political party with a broken political system. Someone's got to give it a go and I'm giving it a go, right? <laughs> And I'm going to succeed in some things. I'm going to fail in other things. That's the truth of it, right? Um, yeah, so so I was dissuaded from getting involved in politics by that kind of, have I got news for you, you know, that kind of dismissal of the point. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have political satire and comedy. I'm not. We just have to be a little bit wary about, you know, the unintended, potential unintended consequences and stuff like that. Well, I think the danger sometimes is that people who have no political experience presume that it's easy. They think politicians are an easy target, and to some extent they are. They don't think about the wider damage they do when they talk about politicians and the sorts of politicians they end up getting if they make politicians look unattractive. Yeah, and, and there's, um, I had an amazing opportunity. So while at that start, I had an amazing opportunity to go to Yale, you know, in 20, 2010. I was actually next door neighbours with Alexei Navalny. So we when we was there. So Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. Talk about imposter syndrome when I got there and I'm with Alexei and Lamomba Ping and Sergei Lagodinsky and all these amazing people. Um, but um, you know, we went out for breakfast with Stanley McChrystal when we were there, who was the general, right? And he said his fear right now, this is 2010, is that the price of getting involved in public life is becoming so high that good people just won't do it. Mm. And then we'll leave it to two kinds of people. Those who have just don't have the ability to hear criticism, they just believe in themselves too much, right? Or those who will pay any price to get power. And we've seen evidence of that, haven't we, in the last uh, few years, you know, writ large in the United States. So again, I, I think there's that, again, it's not, it's not to distance politicians and politics from criticism and challenge and humor and ridicule that's really important uh, to our democracy but we should also be ready to constantly question you know the price of getting involved in public life and i face it now i'm always asking people 
that I know, hey, you should come and get involved. They say, no way, Mark, couldn't do it. And then every time that happens, I know we've just lost a good person. They wouldn't necessarily have got elected. They might have got elected, but there are good people who could have got involved in, in politics. You look at what I experienced and say, hey, I'm not going there, Mark. And that's a real pity. It is. I mean, it, it, one thing that really frustrates me is that anti-politics message that politicians themselves peddle. Yeah. That failure to defend an industry that's so important, that is that, that is elected and removed by the public, that is a form of public service, it would be like a doctor not wanting to be called a doctor or a policeman not wanting to be called a policeman. That is what the job is. And also, if politicians don't defend it, literally no one else is going to defend politics as an industry because people are so cynical of, about it anyway. It's a sign of low confidence and not knowing who you are. If you're yeah. confident in who you are, you'll stand there and you say, all right, well, you know... Uh, yeah, this is what I am. I'm reclaiming the title and this is what I'm actually about with this title. This is what I'm trying to do. Do you agree with that? You know, um, but, but you know, it's like, again, if I quote someone else, Jim Wallace that I worked with in Washington, he's kind of comes out of the civil rights movement and, and all that. He talks about wet finger politicians uh, and what they do is they wet a finger, stick it in the air, see which way the wind is blowing and try and, you know, try and go to it. Oh, there's an anti-politics mood at the moment. So let me make sure that no one thinks I'm a politician. That's that's not leadership. That's wet finger politics, you know. And I think you've got to you've got to you've got to have a, have a sense of knowing what you're about, uh, and then and then give it a go, right? And and politics is a very good uh, vehicle for do that. Don't try and chase, don't try and chase the brand that people want you to be, as I think most many people, not everyone, is not always the case. And and the way communications works, you don't always get a chance to actually be real with people, but kind of people I know, they'll see through that, right? If you're not being yourself, if you're just trying to be the person that you think they want you to be, they'll see see through it in an instant. Also, so I, you know, I think the public prefer it when politicians defend themselves. I, th- I think the public lose respect for politicians who say, oh, politics is broken. They think, well, what, what's the point in you then? I think they prefer it when someone challenges them. So actually, it's really difficult. And, and as you've said, I'm not going to get everything right, but I'm stood here trying to solve these problems. <laughs> Do you want my help or not? I think pr- people prefer that. I, well, I hope so. I've come across <laughs> Yeah, well, let's see. <laughs> let's see what happens in a couple well, of weeks. Well, because I say, I say to people, you know, people come and say, well, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? I say, hold on. What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, I, 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 and then I'm told to be in confrontational and all that. And all I'm saying is, this, I'm just going to work with you the same way as I'd work with my children. Don't keep coming and asking, you know, or anyone else. It's a develop- actually what I would say is, uh, political leadership is 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 about services, right? It's about development, right? It's a developmental relationship, not about creating dependency. And that developmental relationship is about creating power in people's lives and in their communities. And people get power in lives in the communities when they learn that actually they they can develop the solutions, they can they can define their issues, develop the solutions, and they've already got assets, asset-based approach to community development, you might call it, right? Now, that doesn't mean there's not a role for local government. Of course there is, like I said earlier on. We need good policy, we distribute money, and so forth. But that relationship needs to become more of a developmental relationship rather than a, don't worry, I'll sort it out for you and give you the, the answer relationship. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I don't want to dwell on that 2012 defeat, but I am interested in candidates who particularly, it's not like you held the office and then you lost it. You stand for that first time. You'd never held office before. And it's, and it's a defeat. And that's really hard to take. Candidates take defeat personally. It's on the news. You worry about your family. I don't, I don't think people know what politicians go through and how emotionally draining the whole thing is to do all that and then not win. Yeah. Did, did you in that moment think, well, I'm definitely going to have a go next time? Or did you think, sod this? Or did... <laughs> what did you think? I had all those feelings. I can't tell you which one come first. They were swirling around. So part of me was on stage thinking, in the grand sweep of world history, I thought we were just about to turn over the whole hierarchy here and the aristocracy were going to get pushed out and the, the working class lad was coming through like in a Dickensian. I thought, <laughs> so, I, so I was quite sure. I was thinking, I thought, I thought world history was going to be, you know, the grand arc of justice was on my side. Anyway, it didn't happen. Um, I, I did think... I did talk to Arnie Graf, who spent some time over here, and I said, and he, and, and he had said at one point, look, it doesn't go right, just come and talk to me. So I thought, all oh, right, I can go over and Result. take the work with Arnie. Yeah, yeah, take my ball and go somewhere else. <laughs> um, and then there was another part of me that thought, oh, you know, I, I, think, I think we can do this, right? The, narrow, the, the loss wasn't very big. Uh, my brother said to me, early bird gets the worm, second mouse gets the cheese bar. <laughs> I remember <laughs> <laughs> not not the basis of a political campaign, right? But he was right. But it's what he said to me, and I thought actually, well, let's see, you know. And I I, I felt that the the character who won did not really have any coherent policies. I don't think he understood. Um, I didn't think he understood many things that we did about inclusion, aspiration. Um, I had some clear ideas about how we would want to reorganise a city, which is actually winning lots of awards now. The Bristol One City Approach, One European, I've just been, and again, I'm not boasting, but it's just a sign that it's being acknowledged. I got this University of Pennsylvania award along with Yvonne Aki Sawyer, the Mayor of Freetown. That's a global award for the way we've, we've led the city and the city office has been cited in that. So, and I had all these ideas and I thought, I, I know these can work. Um, and so in many ways it kept me, you know, kept me at the, kept me at the wheel. Uh, to, to go again and then I mentioned it to a close friend of mine who was very involved in the first campaign he said Mark people don't like reruns you know they don't they don't like candidates coming back I, I think they anyway. do I think they do people yeah. love a comeback <laughs> think of the great yeah. boxing trilogies people love a comeback yeah yeah but they got to know someone before the comeback didn't they I mean it's like I was like when I first ran who's this guy right I'll tell you a story, actually, I, I, um, that was quite telling. I, I was down at David Carey, the camera was doing an event promoting mayors, promoting the mayor model when he was going yeah. well, it was Yeah, it was their big thing. Labour were against yeah. it at the time, which I just thought was incredible. Well, 
hopefully we've moved on but the um so i'm down there and and there were i don't know 10 12 people who were you know being talked about as running for mayor um and a lot they were all many of them much better known than me in political circles or by journalists but i worked at the bbc so i knew the journalist so he's finishes his talk and everyone's getting interviewed everyone's saying i've got to get myself on tv so i thought well i better do that myself i'm by myself down there and then the reporter went for everyone and then they and then he interviewed the four or five people David Cameron becomes where we said, Marv, I'll be back in a minute. I'll come and interview you. He goes off, interviews Cameron. I'm waiting because I need to get myself. The room's emptying out. There's about five, six people in the room at most. And he comes back, he said, Marv, we're out of time. Oh, time. man. And walks out. <laughs> I was like, I was really embarrassed, you know, but I didn't, I don't let these things show, you know, I just like, okay. And I thought, well, let's see what happens when the, the, the race actually starts. If you, if I'm as irrelevant as, uh, you know, you obviously don't make it to be. It's so hard for politicians, particularly when you're starting out. It's your first campaign and you're standing for such a big office. Yeah. I watched the brilliant film, The Mayor's Race, and there's a really emotional bit in it when you say after that defeat, it feels like you've been put back in your box. Yeah. And it, I, it made my hair stand on end watching it because I felt for you so much just... I don't think people appreciate what candidates go through, and I think people presume... All politicians are pretty similar, that you're all pretty resilient, that it's part of the thing. I don't think they realise, not the baggage, but the life experience you take to a campaign and what it means to you personally to try and represent a community that you've grown up in with the complex relationship you have with that community, to put yourself in front of them, to make yourself vulnerable as a candidate, as every candidate does. And in that moment, I thought, I know so many candidates who felt like that who've never said it. And in a way, I just thought it was so good to see someone say it on camera so that people know that's how it actually feels. I know that's, I know that obviously I've seen the, the documentary, obviously, uh, but I remember where we filmed that. That was on the grass outside my mum's house in the, in the room we moved to in 78. I think I was in a hoodie, right? It was all dark. Was, a bit I, I, I was going to say, the bit immediately after you lose, <laughs> you go straight to an off-licence. I thought, <laughs> taking this very badly. I wasn't sure they'd edited that bit out of it. Hey, good guys in that off license, by the way. They really took care of my mum during COVID. They're fantastic. Oh, brilliant. She lives around the corner from it. So, we, like I say, we've been there since 78. Um, it's hard. It was a mix of things. So, yeah, I did feel that, that, again, like I said, I thought we were going to overturn the aristocracy and all that type of stuff. You know, but it was like, well, you had your fun. You had some, you had a few headlines. Back to normal. And that's how it felt. Again, which goes back to that point we talked about earlier on about independence. Well, what is that? Is that really anti-establishment? Because to me, in my mind, the establishment won, um, you know, and so uh, it was it was painful because and I felt like I I felt pain myself, but I also felt I'd let the I not just the idea the people down, not that I somehow think I represent the people and all this. I wouldn't ever claim that these people go on marches and say we the people like who made you the people, <laughs> but you know I I would never claim to like represent the people uh, like that, but. But I did too, you know, just by virtue of my background and my skin colour, you know, there was, there is something symbolically significant in me running, right? And I can't escape that. Um, and I'm not trying to escape it. But so, so that was hard. Really, it was hard. And, and, but I turned that, right? So I, I've shared too that one of the best I said in my concession speech available on YouTube, <laughs> that actually maybe there's a greater good in me losing, right? I didn't necessarily feel that. But I knew 
from my life experiences that there can be truth in that. And actually, I've been able to say to kids quite often, listen, I stood in front of half a million people as a loser. I, within, within, within weeks of losing that election, I was given a talk to some young kids during the age of gang life. And because I'd been on TV, they kind of like, well, he's just a politician and all that. And I'm actually, my, bro- my brother was in the, in the room at the time, my younger brother. He's not a naughty boy, but he's a lot of his friends where he grows up. And, and I said to him, listen, I, you know, you may have experienced a series of failures in school that, that led you to thinking these are your limited options in life. But I, I stood in front of 460,000 people with all the TV cameras on me as a failure. People say, don't say you failed, Marv. That's not a good word. I said, I did fail. I'm not ashamed of the word. All right. And then, and then actually it goes back to the, actually thinking about what you said earlier on. One of the best things I can do is show that, Hey, you can, you can give it another go. Right. And actually the fullness of that story is one for, for our young people here. I did lose. I did, I did feel an injustice, not that the vote was rigged or unfair like that, but like I said, in that whole hierarchy, I did feel that was unfair in the world history sense. And I gave it another go. But what I also warn them is that just because you give it a go doesn't mean it goes well. The world can be savagely unfair and lots of people with lots of talent and lots of ability and lots of perseverance never get the break. Um, but in, in my instance, there is an example of something happening, um, you know, that, that we would have wanted to happen. And those things are often out of your control. But then you come to 2016 where you win. And, and I just think winning after a defeat must feel so much better. And we'll come on to how that felt a few years ago. But between 2012 and 2016 then, did, did you think, right, I need to do something differently next time? Did you organise more? Did you, did you change anything in 2016 to, to how you'd campaigned in 2012? I'm thinking... So one, one thing that there was a different context... So now people got, as you said, people got to taste this, you know, the mayor and the offer. So the fun and I'm fun and I'm lighthearted and all that sort of stuff. Okay, well, what does that look like in terms of housing and policy and child hunger and inequality? What what does that mean? So we've got to taste that. Uh, So that created a different context. Um, Whereas I bought a baggage of a political party, right? But the, the, one of the things that made the biggest difference, I think, was someone said to me, Mark, people want to know more about you and you, who you are. So going into 2016, partly, may have been partly defence on my part. I didn't really talk about my background. Not because I'm ashamed of it, but my point was, you don't need to know about my background. You need to know about what I want to do, right? I'm not coming here playing a violin to you, I were with me, and I like, but you need to know what, what I'm about. So I very rarely did it. Um, but actually, maybe it feeds in. People do need to know about policy, but you also do need to know where people come from because that will inform what they do and their backstory is a part of who they are. And who they are is the interaction of who they are with the office will kind of give you some indication of how they respond to things that you don't know kind of come your way yet, right? Or even if you don't like what something looks like, you might have more space for trusting that even if you don't like the outcome, they did it for the right reasons or they did their best in a bad situation. Um, so I shared a lot more about my personal story. And I think, I don't think um, that's necessarily a bad thing because we're human beings. I was trying to think of this in the most generous way possible. People want to like the people they're governed by. They want to go, you know what? I'm not necessarily a Labour guy or a Tory guy or a Lib Dem woman or an SNP woman, but I like that person and I'm going to give them my vote. And I think sometimes people can feel, it's not even ashamed. They just think, they're not comfortable talking about their background for a number of reasons, privileged or not, troubled or not. You know, it's just not, it doesn't come naturally to them. But I think politicians probably do need to realise that 
letting a little bit of yourself out is it can only be an advantage really because people want to know that the character of the individual that's going to lead them yeah so that i, I think that's true i do think people want to know their politicians and like them but it, there are a number of challenges around that too all right one is when do you get the chance to do that yeah. <laughs> right? on so shows like people, this well yeah shows like this but you know my little catchphrase most people don't actually interact with politicians they interact mm-hmm. with a journalistic interpretation of politicians and listen maybe it's why not wise to say i have a difficult relationship sometimes with uh with journalists like i said particularly if i've got a first you know i don't hold it against you but i don't hold it against people but if i've got quite a kind of a posh <laughs> privileged you know giving it like not even self-aware but giving it to me like i'm somehow represented establishment and they're not i i do kind of feel a ways about that and i i said now if i've got a quality journal i've got some quality journalists new york times ft and all that and then they, they have a degree of self-awareness and expertise but if i think someone's just like to try and get me not because of the policy but to get me as a member of the establishment and they are there speaking up for the people then I kind of think mm, this doesn't sit quite right. And then they'll write, oh, well, Marvin, he's thin-skinned, he's this, that, and the other. I did actually, I, I, I've been described thin-skinned as by a locally, this is the kind of narrative, but, you know, I did say to the head of BBC the other day, I said, um, I've been chased down the streets of Bristol by people calling me a N, right? As a kid, it was not unusual, right? It happened when I was playing sport too. I get thousands of hate emails. I got one calling me a black seed the other day and all this. I said, I'm still here smiling at you. You think I'm thin-skinned, right? You think you could cope with what I've coped with growing up in life and still be, where's the thin skin in that? Now, it may be that I find some of the questioning superficial and lacking any insight and analysis. And I kind of say, you know, it's really not good journalism, right? You take that thin skin, that's your choice. (laughs) The thing is though, thin-skinned really is such a calculated insult because Everyone gets hurt by criticism. And why the problem is if someone says you're thin-skinned and you go, no, I'm not, <laughs> it makes you look yeah, thin-skinned. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't win with an accusation like <laughs> no. that. No. Well, I said to them anyway. So, so one of the reporters said on, on, on a breakfast news programme, well, Marvin doesn't like criticism. I said, well, first off, who does? Right? <laughs> so where's the news in that, right? It's not whether you like criticism or not, it's what you do with it. Do you have the ability to say, well, I didn't like that, that stung a little bit, but actually I can reflect on it and find out if there's some truth in it, you know, and dare I say, I've kind of learned to do that a bit um, over the years and I get truth from me in my office. My office, you know, my chief of staff, Kevin, will say, yeah, it won't go. <laughs> and I know I get that truth, right? Uh, secondly, you also made that in a news report. So you're making it like a statement of fact, but then you get into Fox News territory, what's news and what's opinion. Right? You're sharing your opinion, uh, uh, you know, rather than a statement. So, so they said, yeah, OK, well, we, we kind of hear that. Um, but yeah, that that is um, that's an easy one. But the, the thing that I, I came from five years working at the BBC, right? I worked at the BBC for five years. In five, I joined as a band five journalist in 2001. I left at the end of 2005 as a band five journalist. Right. My pay had gone up three or four thousand pounds during that time. No life progress. My mental health had been worn down and I resigned from the BBC with no job to go to, right? That's how bad it was for me. <laughs> so when you interview me and you start treating me like I'm the establishment, you don't think there's some backstory there? <laughs> well, you, you know, know what? About how you as an organisation deal with black people. And Barney Chowdhury has written uh, papers on the hemorrhage of black and Asian staff, but you're still coming to kind of 
do the accountability thing with me. Come on, you know, that doesn't mean you can't do accountability, but we just have to have a little bit of self-awareness, you know? And a bit of respect as well, and it's two-way. You've hit upon something that bugged me the whole time I worked in politics, which was local media can be really ferocious, really personal, really nasty. And it's kind of just an accepted part of local politics. And I think people don't realise that this happens in towns and cities across the UK and around the world. But, you know, we're in Britain. I mean, some of the stuff I saw politicians get from local papers, from the local BBC, I was just shocked with. It's the sort of stuff, if it was happening nationally, Downing Street would be absolutely at war with these things. But when it happens locally, we just kind of accept it. Or the public seem to accept it. And I think the politicians think, well, this clearly just goes with the territory. Matt, I'm on dangerous territory here. I'm coming into an election on May the 6th. <laughs> and it is not wise for me to spill my guts. The problem is I can't help it. <laughs> I, I can only say what I, I can only say my experience. I can't swallow this. You know, it's it's an issue. And, 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 and one of my, um, you know, my fears is that you know what it's become, and and the, the danger of the danger of the danger of one of the biggest dangers facing journalism is in, is in just like politicians. When you forget who you are and forget what you're about, you chase the public, and you chase what you think the public want. So politicians, oh, I'm not a politician. Journalists is I got to get clicks. Right? I'm selling advertising here. I got to get clicks on my story. And what do people click on? Barack Obama wrote about this in Audacity of Hope. They don't click on, ah, yeah, you kind of had a point, you know? Or I, I, I appreciate the logic of your argument. I just disagree with the conclusion. Or I think you got this premise wrong. That's why you've ended up, but if you follow my... They don't click on that. They click on clash, got them in the corner, got them on the ropes. Marvin wades in, Marvin hits back. Marvin, And I'm like, I'm not hitting back. You said something, I disagreed, and I shared a different view. <laughs> Marvin <Yeah>. replied. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Marvin, yeah. And... Yeah, but they but they think people click on conflict, right? And so actually, I think actually, and I've heard MPs say this, there's a lot of stuff happens in committee rooms that is actually not full of conflict with MPs actually just getting stuff done together. It's not great news, right? And that's a real problem. So then if most people don't interact with real politicians and they interact with a journalistic interpretation of politics, mm. that's why they think it's always spats and bun fights and, and all that, right? And then, and then unfortunately, the the... the, the the, the playback is that when politicians want publicity, how are they going to get publicity? They don't get publicity by being reasonable. They get publicity by wading in and hitting back. We get this here. You know, I've got one party. I mean, we, I played word bingo with them at full council. Catastrophe, Armageddon, dictatorship, you know, like I said, Pol Pot. I mean, the, most, the, the more outrageous they can be in their, uh, you know, their criticism or their challenge, the more likely they are to get themselves you know, a bit of um, coverage in, in the media. And then we end up with bouncing between politicians and journalists going down this rabbit hole, again, that feeds back into undermining the legitimacy of and the, and the significance of political office. There's been a lot of attention on Bristol in the last couple of years for, for uh, well, for a lot of things, but the, the pulling down of the Colston statue and, and, and the Kill the Bill protest the other week, just taking those two things in turn... How did it feel for you as, as mayor of Bristol, as a black man, to see that statue pulled down? I mean, it must be, well, I can't imagine how it feels for you, but on the one hand, you're a human being. On the other hand, you're also an elected politician. There, there must... Hey, oh, you, hold on. Elected, <laughs> politician, <laughs> human, 
<laughs> elected politicians are human beings. I know, but you know what I mean? You, like don't, give the, up, you don't give up the title. <laughs> I know, but you, you know what I mean? Like this kind of part of me that's like, it must be so hard when there's conflict going on in your city to know how to respond yeah. correctly. Yeah. So I think the lesson is, right? Don't try and respond correctly. Right? Try and work out what the correct response is. <laughs> And what's the difference? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to work out myself. <laughs> it, made, it, it made sense. When it it sounded great. It sounded, <laughs> it great. sounded good. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe, maybe it's, I'm not, we weren't trying to work out a response that was right, that people wanted. All right. I tried to work out the response of what, what I felt in that moment in time. And the truth was two things that were true at the same time that were difficult bedfellows. As the elected mayor, I cannot condone civil disorder, criminal damage, and all the rest of it, right? Um, and there was, right? But not just as a descendant of enslaved Africans, but, but not just as a Bristolian, but as a human being, the fact that a statue to a man who made his money out of kidnap, and remember, slavery was not just about kidnap, right? It's about access to rape, uh, child abuse, uh, mutilation and torture all those things that people indulged all their fantasies they indulged on people who were robbed of their human status the fact the statue to that man is 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 gone i'm not going to pretend it saddens me that it's gone i'm not going to pretend that the, the existence of that statue in the middle of the city was anything other than an affront to me as all of those things and you know what they're difficult things to hold together but they're both true at the same time and what, in the aftermath, you know, when the cameras go away, when the national media moves on to the next thing, what is the post, I don't really want to call it statue gate, but what is, the, what is the post, you know, that protest, the aftermath of that, how has managing the politics of that been? Do, do you sense that Bristol as a city is having this conversation in quite a constructive way? I thought we did, actually. Um, and I'd say one of the, one of the, like, while government got upset about it and started saying things, like my, I pushed back quite hard on government home secretary. Our police policed it intelligently. There was criminal damage, but that was it. No big smash windows and no big rights. And I and that was a source of pride for me in Bristol that we did that. And people around the world were saying, wow, this is amazing the way the city um, uh, worked through this. Coming off the back of it, so there was a rally the weekend after, right, at the Cenotaph. And it was football fans Right, and people were portraying that as a far right rally. It wasn't, right? There may have been some uh, far right there, but it wasn't a far right rally, right? The Hell's Angels even turned up, right? Now, I said to myself, "What, whatever happened? The cities are complicated, and just like in a family, sometimes you get what you want, sometimes you don't get what you want, and sometimes you actually get what you don't want." <laughs> right? The art of making a city is in that actually on any of those things, you know this is a city that is a home for you and respects you because actually that's just one issue. There were a hundred, there were a thousand and one other issues in which you're probably quite happy, right? The fact that we've tackled period poverty, given priority housing for domestic violence and abuse, people fleeing domestic violence and abuse. The fact that we've upped the number of families offering foster care, you're probably happy about all of those, right? So let's get it in context and let's think about how we make sure this is, you know this is a city that respects you. I actually went to meet some of the football uh, lads right and and um it didn't do any headlines around it obviously we didn't talk because we wanted to talk and my point was look what's going on for you right and then what was interesting they were pains to point out they were not far right right and actually talked a lot about it and actually they weren't i know one of them was in interracial marriage too right another one was mixed race himself you know had a jamaican flag 
you know, and, and actually say, look, what's going on for you? Interestingly, what they said, one of the things he said was, we feel like we're losing our seat. And I said, you are losing your seat, but you're losing it to house prices, right? And that's what we're trying to build houses, affordable homes. But they, they made the distinction between losing it to the wealth and the gentrification, right? As opposed to, you know, multi, multiculturalism, which is what the cheap culture war politics then begins to throw up, to throw up, right? And so what we wanted to do is say, look, we're, we're you know, we're here for, for um, we're, we're here for everyone, but it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of uh, humility. I think, I mean, some, sometimes our politics becomes very accusational, isn't it? Who can I consign to hell? You know, who doesn't believe like I believe. Activism gets like that too. No graciousness. And it's a real problem. No graciousness, no redemption. It's a real problem of the way we do our public discourse now. One of the things that you've brought in since that is the atonement and, and reparations plan. What does it actually involve? Well, that's there's a lot to that. I mean, it was a motion brought and and it was passed in the city. And it's a my again. I, I've been very clear when it was being brought. We have to be very clear on what we mean by reparations because, like, like you know, my mum is a white woman. She clearly has experienced uh, white privilege is real but my mum did not lead a life of privilege, right? Again, <laughs> difficult truths. And we've got to be wary that there are lots of white people left behind saying, oh, hold on, but you're coming and asking me for the dip in my pocket to make up for something that happened 200 years ago. So for me, this is about dealing with the legacy of historical inequality that is real. We've seen to, the numbers today, unemployment for, for black young people is at 40%, for young white people is at 17% now, disproportionately about COVID. We know these things happen. So how do we begin to deal with the institutions? Dare I say, institutional racism uh, that continue these inequalities um, and, and correct them so that we have um, equal uh, life chances. We've also set up a history commission, uh, by the way, um, that is there to tell the full story of Bristol. And my point is, if you knew the full story of Bristol, would, who would you choose to celebrate? We have not told the story of people who fought for workers' rights in Bristol in the same way as Bristol's told, been told the story of Colston, who did not really fight for workers' rights. What he did do was set up some, you know, arms houses and did some charitable works, but he didn't, he didn't turn over the class system, <laughs> the privilege system. You know, would we choose to, to, to celebrate the women in Bristol who fought for women's rights or those people who have taken care of our kids in the care system? There are other heroes whose stories have never been told, um, who, whose stories are squashed by the, uh, by the, you know, the merchant elite of Bristol's history. Um, and so our history commission is there to tell that fuller story. And then we, we've got a different context within which to make decisions about who we should and shouldn't celebrate. Feels like you've handled a really difficult debate really, really well. And there are so many different pressures on you as an individual in that debate. And perhaps pressures you put on yourself. Um, I, I can't think of a politician that would have handled it better. It just feels like... Sometimes these rows, I mean, Bristol obviously has a unique history that means that it's been a flashpoint at various points for various different things. So perhaps it was always more likely to happen somewhere like Bristol. So it's not entirely out of a clear blue sky, but nevertheless, as a politician, things happen on your watch that you weren't planning for and how you deal with it. You know, that, how you deal with that may be far more important to people in their perception of you than any of the other things you do as mayor, but that may end up being the thing that really tells people about who you are and it wasn't something that was in a manifesto no yeah i don't know i mean look, i i mean i i think potentially in that as a potential race conflict moment you know my my mixedness helped like i said 
you know, I know what it is to be white and poor, you know, and to be left behind. Um, I also know what it is to be chased down the street by people calling me all sorts of names and telling me to go back to my own country. You know, I know the frustrations of feeling like you don't have a purchase in your city. Uh, it, the city's leaving you behind. I know those feelings. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and maybe that just brought to bear. And then I, I think over time, again, in fact, my chief of staff, Kevin, said to me, Kevin Slocum said to me the other day, he said, one of the things, you know, about me was that we work out what we think is right and then we pursue it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't listen. We talk to people, you know, we take counsel. But once, we, once we've done the calculation, I think you're saying, look, this is what I think is the right thing to do. Don't tack to where people are, otherwise you'll be blown around by every wind that comes. Um, and that's what we tried to do. Um, and we did it in that situation as well. You mentioned the phrase white privilege there and the issues that disadvantaged white people might have with it. How does Labour specifically bring together this coalition of people? And how does it tell a story to the country about disadvantage without different disadvantaged people effectively feeling like there's a finite amount of fairness to go around? And yeah. if we're talking about white privilege, then we're alienating people in council estates across the UK. Yeah, I, I don't know what the easy answer to that is, other than you just say it as blatantly as it needs to be said. I, I've said in the city, we ain't playing equalities like top trumps here. Right? And I do say this openly, we do this, this happens. Okay, I'm talking to you about race. Ah, oh, but I got a story about gender. Ah, oh, but I got a story about this. Hold on, just let me tell my story. <laughs> and and you know what? When I'm telling my story, I'm not saying that your story don't matter. It's just at the moment we're talking about my story. And I respect the fact that you have a story. And I'm not trying to compete with you to so who has the worst story, right? So as I said, again, things that are difficult to hold together. There is such a thing called white privilege. But my white mum, my granddad came from Merthyr Tidville, was too poor to go to university, ended up working on buses his whole life. You know, he didn't need a life of privilege. But there is a thing called white privilege. Right? That's just true. So how do we, how do we say actually we're a party that recognises, you know, that kind of uh, complexity? And I, we are going to do work for the, you know, white working class, the, the, the people left behind. But what we're not going to do is say, oh, is We've got to do the same for the white working class as we've done for black people because black people have had it easy these are because everyone's talking about race. I hear that. Well, they wouldn't do that if I was black. Well, you know, it's the last known, it's the last acceptable racism or prejudice. You've got to stop that language. You're not competing, right? There's lots of drivers of inequality and oppression, right? Um, and, and unfairness. We just need to deal with them and, and stop, stop people being given the space to trade us off against each other. You had other protests in Bristol recently, uh, the Kill the Bill protest, where footage was shown around the world of police vans being torched and police being attacked yeah. and whatever else. Again, that's a, a crisis that hits your city on your watch, not a crisis as a result of anything you've done. And again, your reaction to that seemed very measured, very clear, very fair, particularly in your relationship with the police. And, uh, and for many reasons, politicians on the left have a complicated relationship with the police. People from the black community have a complicated relationship with the police. How does it feel for you to be the elected leader of a city and with all your history, with all your knowledge of other people's histories, be in a position where you're defending a public service that perhaps at times hasn't always necessarily been an ally to other people in your community? Yeah. The way I saw it, I wasn't defending the police. I was defending the city. 
right? And I was actually defending the efforts to come to defeat the bill, right? And I was, yeah, I mean, even as mayor, I had an incident, I won't go into detail, but a police officer decided to have an interaction with me, but unfortunately for him, he didn't recognize me till it was too late <laughs> and he was incredibly rude. Um, so it happens, <laughs> it still happened. But no, look, my, my point of that was, first off, you, the city was robbed of that amazing moral authority it had to speak on issues of injustice by doing stuff in a nonviolent way, cost the statute. We, they robbed us of that opportunity. Uh, my second point is, what's the logic? Right? To defeat the bill, you've got to defeat it in the Commons. What is the connection between the actions you're taking in Bristol and getting Conservative MPs to vote against the whip? Right? Don't, you, you, people will more coercive, intrusive policing. People like me and my brothers and sisters will be the ones on the receiving end of that. If you're going to go back to your, your parents' house in the countryside, or next to Hampton Court, I clicked on a couple of profiles of people that were involved, you know, that's fine for you, right? But we ain't got time to fail. <laughs> so if you're going to step in and take leadership and shape the protest, you've got to get your strategy right. So your strategy has to be connected to how you're going to defeat the bill. If you just indulge in your emotions at that point in time, then I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated with that, right? Um, so you, and, and actually, I saw you, I think you saw the loss of control because the next protest was police violence the protest after that was bbc bias well where's the bill gone <laughs> so so that was that was simply my point where's the strategy now we're not we're not opposed to protest summer bridge march fantastic but summer bridge march had a strategy right we want the voting rights act we're creating, creating conditions that makes it possible or actually necessary for lyndon johnson to get the voting rights act through you know, you've got to approach it with that kind of um clinical uh you know uh, insight Someone did challenge me the other day, why don't you speak up too? I said, well, you know, we just done Lammy Review in the city. Did you speak up on Lammy Review? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 to me, it was about the city and about the actual moral authority that comes from demonstrating without violence against a bad, you know, a bad bill in London. And, and that had been lost. And I, I think that's a, that was a, a major problem. I was also asked on Times Radio, why Bristol? And I said, I said, that's a good question. Right, it's a Labour city. Four Labour MPs, Labour mayor, a Labour majority, and an independent police crime commissioner. What's the connection between taking action in Bristol and pressure on Conservative MPs? If you've got a finite amount of time, people, resource, right? Where's the connection? Now, it may be, it could be absolutely legitimate to take. I'm not saying it's not legitimate, but but please explain to me what the the strategy is, right? And that's that's my point, you know. But we're opposing the bill. We're trying to get lined up with local people who want to oppose the bill with our MPs as well. And whatever the history of people's relationship with people who used to be police officers, current members of the police force are public sector staff. These are people that Labour people should feel some sense of solidarity with. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly, as I said, I've had incidents growing up and more latterly. But what I would say is, Again, I defended our police after the Colson statue because I just thought their policing was outstanding. And I know personally that we've got a lead, we, we've had a leadership and had a chief constable is not standing again, which is an incredibly high risk time for us. Um, but Andy Marsh and Andy Bennett, the heads of the police, the police crime commissioner, were outstanding. And, and I will say that throughout the whole year, whenever we've had these incidents coming up, they have been committed, as we have, to defending the right to protest and facilitating protest. Right? They've got COVID pressure on them. But yeah, how do we facilitate protest? I also know that that chief constable has just left, uh, who is leaving. Um, 
has a personal commitment to tackling race inequality in the police. Again, who do we get next? Are they going to have the same? Are we going to have the same caliber? A police officer who comes up, the police chief constable comes up and says, "Marvin, I've just finished reading why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, and I think I have this insight now." That's the kind of chief constable I want. There's no guarantee that we're going to get that one, <laughs> get one like that again. Uh, so bringing pressure on that, yeah. So you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts here. Marvin, this has been a real treat talking to you and, and picking your brain. And whatever happens on May the sixth. In a couple of weeks' time, it'd be great to talk to you again. I'd love it. If I lose, maybe I can join some of your connections because I'll be looking for work. <laughs> I'm not sure what connections I have, but <laughs> I will open up my black book to you, should it help. Fantastic. Any friends you've got in the establishment? Uh, very, <laughs> mate, uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm from Nottingham, mate. I haven't got any friends oh, in the right. establishment. <laughs> All the best, Marvin. Thank you so much. Take care. Really appreciate Bye-bye. it. Thank you. Well, there you go, Marvin Reese. We only really scratched the surface of so many things that in themselves would be worth such a more in-depth discussion. And I hope I can get Marvin back on the show. I would love to do an event with him in Bristol. Uh, he's a brilliant talker. And there are obviously one of the great, just the thing I love about doing this show is the different people with different backgrounds who experience politics in a different way, who go in for different reasons and get to different levels, make different decisions. And what I try to do with this thing is just get the whole patchwork quilt of all different types of politicians with their different worldviews, different experiences. And of course, as I say numerous times, I hate repeating myself because people always email me and say, oh, you always say that. But when you interview a politician at the end of their career and you're looking back, when you're talking to someone like Malcolm Rifkind and you're getting that grand view of history, it's very different to talking to someone who's just standing for office for the first time or is seeking re-election. But Marvin is just so open and honest about what he thinks. And that sort of politics, where you're just explaining to the public, I'm not going to get everything right, I absolutely love. And I just think if politi- more politicians are like that. Obviously, you want politicians to be themselves. You don't want people to copy people if it's not natural. But I, I do wonder why there aren't more people like Marvin who just say, look, there's only so much I can do, and this is the honesty of it, rather than making big, grand promises you know you can't deliver, and just about having that constant dialogue with the public um, and knowing you're not going to get everything right. In itself, is just an inspiring thing to hear a politician say. And everyone brings their own personal experience to that office, and, and the office shapes them, and they shape the office, and it just, I just loved that conversation. Um, so let's see what happens to Marvin, and all the candidates we've had on, I've got some more guests coming up before polling day. Um, hopefully you are now all registered to vote, um, because the deadline, depending on when you listen to this, is the, is the night of the 19th, so if you listen to this in the morning of the 19th, you've still got a few hours left, so I've put a link can click on the link to make sure you register to vote. And if you don't feel comfortable going into a polling station, you can, of course, register to vote by post. But depending on when you listen to this, you've either just missed the deadline, sorry, or um, you've got a bit of time, but not much. So crack on with it. And of course, talking of venturing outside of the house, three nights at the Garrick, the 24th and the 25th of May and the 2nd of June, where I have just a a phenomenal lineup of amazing guests. Peter Mandelson, Saeed Avasi, Keir Starmer, Andrea Ledson, Jess Phillips, Esther McVeigh. And this Thursday, the 22nd of April, Tony Blair on my first ever political party streaming event. You can get your tickets for all those by clicking on the links that are in the blurb or just by going to mattford.com slash live. And I'll see you there. Hopefully I'll see you this Thursday with Tony Blair. Until then, ta-ra. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.